Running a company is just a daily process of dealing with things that go wrong that either we're going fine yesterday that you have control over or that we're going fine yesterday that you have no control over. It's a constant kind of game of cat and mouse between the industry and the government and the manufacturers and the government and the customers and the government. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a, there's a lot to pay attention to. So on today's episode, we're joined by the founder of Zero Shoes. It's a minimalistic footwear company dedicated to giving people the freedom of barefoot movement. It is a terrific episode. This time, I really mean it that you do not want to miss. So do stay tuned. Retail and e-commerce have witnessed an unprecedented transformation in the last decade. The widespread adoption of mobile technology, social media, as well as the lowered cost of cloud-based technology has not only eroded the barriers to entry in retail, but it's also led to the rapid rise and dominance of digital native product brands that sell directly to their customers. On this podcast, you'll get the scoop on customer acquisition and retention strategies employed by high-growth digital native product brands. Not being afraid to spend because you know that customer is going to pay it back uh, three or four-fold. That's when you start to unlock channels in the way that they were meant to be used. And Listen to interviews with experts at the forefront of technology and innovation in digital retail. Three years ago, they wouldn't have come to us because, yeah, the macro trend of cloud, Wi-Fi, broadband availability, that was a real, that was a real problem. Hear first-hand stories from founders of innovative direct-to-consumer brands. Although I was thinking about the competition, I was more thinking about, like, how do I just build a freaking successful business? We focus on driving as much traffic as possible, converting that traffic, uh, and then dumping money back into driving more traffic. These insights will help you consistently 2x growth in specific areas of your direct-to-consumer brand. This is the 2x e-commerce podcast, hosted by Kunle Campbell. As you continue to grow your e-commerce business, access to growth capital would increasingly play a significant role in achieving and surpassing your financial and social goals. Why should you give up equity or pay high interest rates to grow your business? There is a new way to access growth capital that transforms e-commerce businesses. Wayflyer has shaken the way e-commerce operators access working capital. With a dedication to only D2C e-commerce businesses, Wayflyer will fund you on a fairer fund-as-you-grow model, meaning if your sales slow down, so does the amount you transfer back. There's just a simple fee and the funds you need to grow are deposited to your account instantly. It's worth checking out on wayflyer.com. That's W-A-Y-F-L-Y-E-R. Hi, 2Xers. Welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast. I'm your host, Kunit Campbell. The 2X e-commerce podcast is dedicated to digital commerce insights for retail and commerce teams, e-commerce teams, that is. On today's episode, I um, was joined by Steve Sashen, very, very interesting individual. He is the founder of Zero Shoes. I mean, on this podcast, we should be interviewing more D2C founders such as Stephen. They're few and far between, um, but we should hunt them and get them on. Do you know why? He has a phenomenal background. 
Um, he has um, taken on several roles in the past. Um, he's been a screenwriter, internet marketer since 1992, 60-year-old um, D2C entrepreneur. I wouldn't even say he's a D2C entrepreneur because he's sort of evolved this brand to more um, an omni-channel, a multi-channel, an omni-channel, you know, brand. They're, they're working with distributors now. Um, so, so who? What is Zero Shoes? Well, they are a minimalistic or minimal footwear company dedicated to giving people the freedom of barefoot movement. And interestingly, um, a few weeks ago. Um, prior to recording this episode, I started barefoot running because I have been plagued with injuries. One year knee injury, and I love running. I had a one year long injury, couldn't run for a full year, started running again and um, started to have ankle pains and knee pains, more ankle pains in the mornings on my right leg. So I decided to let me go out and strip the trainers. Um, I, I use cushion trainers and just run barefooted. I, I bought a book um, about barefoot running. And interestingly, in this interview, I realized that um, Stephen actually was inspired by the author of the book. He knows the author of the book. Um, and, um, you know, they, they've crossed paths essentially of the same book I've, I've been reading around, you know, barefoot running. Anyway, they are a 40, they're close to, they're panning to about 40 million um, US dollars um, in, in revenue. Very, very interesting. And um, their, 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 their channels are essentially um, primarily D2C, uh, marketplaces via Amazon, um, and then they have um, a number of distribution deals um, with retail um, retailers, essentially. So they're they're, they're, they're multi-channel brand growing. Um, they have a team size of, I, be, I believe it's 60 in the United States alone. They have European operations. They have a UK partner. Um, chances are, if you're into minimalist, um, you know, footwear, you would have come across um you know um, them. The, the other very interesting thing about Zero Shoes is the fact that um, they don't just sell you shoes. If you want to sort of build, make your shoes yourself, they can give you, you know, all of the components and materials that go into building shoes, and they give you a manual to make your own minimalist shoes. Um, so very open company, very open individual. Um, he's widely read. Um, full of life, um, lots of enthusiasm. This is, you know, this is this is a very very high quality um, conversation I had with him. Um, he's still a gymnast. He's still a sprinter. Um, he is um, he is one of the fastest runners today in the United States in the in the over fifty five um, you know men's space. Incredible. Um, one other thing is he was featured in, in Shark Tank. And Kevin O'Leary wanted to to take um, you know fifty percent of his company for four hundred k, and he hit himself and his wife Leah thought they're having a laugh. You know, Lena, sorry, said they're having a laugh, and um, they walked away. But he said Shark Tank changed. Um, first of all, the way the preparation for Shark Tank got them to sort of re just to focus on exactly what they were about as a business. And then the exposure of Shark Tank really took them to a new level. And um, they've just kept on building from there on. So I don't want to say too much, but just interesting interview. I've decided to split this in half. Um, so you're going to get the first half of the interview today. 
and then the next half of the interview will be tomorrow. Nonetheless, very, very, very interesting interview. So enjoy part one of the interview and we shall catch up on the other side. Cheers. Thanks. The 2X e-commerce podcast is brought to you by Klaviyo, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Klaviyo gives you the tools to get going faster. That is why it's trusted by over 50,000 e-commerce brands like Brooklinen, Non, and Chubbies. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com forward slash 2x to create your free account. That is K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com forward slash 2x. Hey, Stephen. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the 2x e-commerce podcast. Um, uh, one thing you, you didn't know um, is I, I've just started barefoot running. Um, I started it about three weeks ago. I actually posted to LinkedIn that I started barefoot running. So it's I'm going to use this opportunity to, to, to get into barefoot, well, so, barefoot running. So why? What made you decide to start? My uh, injuries. Injuries. And I feel I'm not getting that connection with the ground, that stability. That Are you suggesting my, that a regular shoe that has an inch to two inches of foam doesn't connect you to the ground? <laughs> <laughs> precisely, precisely. <laughs> now, I want, I want to pause and say, look, I'm not going to be suggesting that people take off their shoes and run barefoot. It changed my life, and I'll be curious to hear what it does for you. But there's other alternatives, which is why zero shoes. Um, but suffice it to say, it's really, it's not about whether you're wearing shoes or not. It's about what you're doing with your body, if you're letting your body do what's natural versus getting in the way of letting mm -hmm. your body do what it's meant to do. Mm -hmm. So I love that you did that. And injury, you know, people who have some sort of injury, that is the number one reason people decide to explore this and find out if there's a there there, which there is, um, and uh, happy to hear it. So what's, what's it been like for the last three weeks? Still challenging, I have to say, because you have to take it really easy. Um, yep. I'm, uh, so what I do is I, I, I run um, three or four times a week. So I would do like four and a half K or, you know, 4.6 K on with my trainers. And then I'll take them off when I get to the field and I'll run bare, barefooted. Um, because um, from, from the literature I've read, it's, it's best not to just get onto it. So you, you should really just, um, you know, um, win yourself into it rather yeah. than, um, you know, go for it full time. Well, you would never switch to a new shoe and then just go run a race the next day because you want to get used to that shoe. Same thing with barefoot. I'm going to suggest, though, that you turn your training upside down, that if you can, find a nice, smooth, hard surface and do the first bit barefoot because that's when you're the freshest and your mind is most aware of what's happening right. with the rest of your body. And then, you know, if you want to finish it off in shoes after that, do that. And when I say like a short run, I mean like, you know, 20, 30 seconds. And if it doesn't feel okay. great, like you want to keep going, wait until, you know basically play with the variables, which is your gait, which is whether you're reaching out with your foot and landing in front of you or getting your foot underneath you with mm -hmm. how many steps you're taking per minute. And you might want to play with that a little bit, not mm -hmm. grossly, you know, but just a little bit. Um, you want to sort of see how your body is positioned, whether you're keeping your core engaged or if you're kind of squishy when you run. So mm -hmm. these are all like little things that make a difference. So I say to people, if you're going to run barefoot, smooth, hard surface, really short run. And if you're not having fun, 
do something different till you are. Smooth, because, hard, hard surface, not, not, not yeah, soft yeah. surfaces. Okay. No, 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 no. So again, you know, the squishy foam in your shoe, which doesn't actually protect you because what happens is you have something squishy underneath your foot, your leg stiffens to try to use the squishy thing, but the squishy thing doesn't work as well as the muscles, ligaments, and tendons. Mm. So a smooth, hard surface gives you the most feedback and also gives you the most responsiveness. And, um, but the feedback is the most important part because that feedback is going to tell you whether you're doing it well or not. Because when you're running barefoot, uh, doing it wrong hurts and doing it right feels great. And so that's your guide is fun and comfort. If it feels if it, it feels like you're working too hard, you're working too hard. And the solution is not something like build up calluses or have to get stronger. It's usually relaxing more and just making mm-hmm. sure that you're landing with your feet underneath your body, that you're kind of getting your feet off the ground without pushing, like lifting your foot off the ground rather than pushing off the ground. Um, Again, if it's not fun, you're definitely doing something wrong. Okay, super interesting. I should start a barefoot podcast. (laughs) 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 Yeah, but um, yeah, you're you're here to, to really tell us the phenomenal story of Zero Shoes um, I, I just don't want to touch the surface. I don't want to ask you about, um, you know, the channels you'll, you know, you, you, you get traffic in, how you do email sure. marketing, how you do SMS marketing. I really want to get down to your story. Um, how you started, do, were you, have you always been entrepreneurial? Um, given your numbers yeah. as in we're, we were, I mean, you're, you're an over 30 million in revenue business. Um, you've been in, in business for about a decade or so. So 12 and a half years. 12 and a half years. So you've, you've done, you've done phenomenally well over this period. You've been featured in Shark Tank. Um, you have had a, you've had one of the first equity driven, you know, crowdfunding campaigns. You know what you're doing. You've been through a number of businesses. So do you want to just give us some context as to who you are, Stephen? <laughs> uh, boy, if I had an answer for that, um, I would happily give it. I, um, I'm a guy who likes to figure out how things work. I have never had a real job. Um, I have done a bajillion different things, but any anything that seemed like a job was a business that I created. I've never interviewed for a job. I want to do that at some point, just for the fun of it. Um, and and really, I want to have fun. Like I want to find a like a big deal interview and go and give all the wrong answers just to see what happens. <laughs> and um, why do you want to work here? Well, for the money, obviously. Why would anybody want to work here? Are you kidding? Um, <laughs> I'm just going to call it what it is. I think that would be a blast. And. Um, uh, and I mean, I started young, God, I just had a flashback. My first job, my first way of making money, uh, there was two. One was my dad was really into footwear, ironically, and he would pay me 25 cents for polishing his shoes and 50 cents for poly- polishing his boots. And th- now this is 50 years ago. Um, he didn't realize how often he needed his shoes and boots polished. I clearly was much more aware of that than he was. The second thing that I did is I figured out the combination of his piggy bank. <laughs> and, um, and so I would go in there every now and then and, you know, rate it for quarters. And I love telling that story because right before my dad died, um, I made some comment about that bank that he had, which he still had. And he said uh, he knew that I had figured out the combination when I was a kid. And he just thought it was entertaining that I would go in and take a dollar for the quarters every now and then. <laughs> I did just just enough that you know I could go out and buy some candy, not enough that he would notice. But he noticed. Fair enough. <laughs> which, which was great. Um, and then uh, when I was I – think it's, maybe I started when I was 13 – I was doing magic shows at kids' birthday parties. Mm. Um, at 16, I started street performing. Um, I ended up doing stand-up comedy for 10 years. 
I ended up getting a degree in film because I had nothing else to do during the week when I was doing stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. I wrote some screenplays. I ended up inventing the industry standard word processing software for film and television writers. Um, on the side, I'd been meditating since I was 10 and I mm-hmm. developed a weird meditation course. I was selling that online. Um, I did a bunch of other internet marketing. I've been, I've been an internet marketer since 1992, pretty much before there was an internet. Right. And so all these things kind of came together at the right time that allowed us to start Zero Shoes, including probably most importantly, the fact that somehow my wife decided to become my wife or actually become my girlfriend first, actually friend first, girlfriend, then wife, um, uh, after three years of ignoring me. And, or really, that's not true. Uh, avoiding me like the plague is more accurate. <laughs> and then she gave in and became my friend and then um, eventually somehow decided to become my wife. And I say that that's the important part because she's a brilliant operations finance person and I'm a marketing product person. Oh, yeah. So when this started, it was just like, you know, the perfect fit. You need, you need that synergy. You really need that synergy. Yeah. You can't do it all. Super, super interesting. So did you start Barefoot Running before Zero Shoes? Did you not like what was in the market? How did you sort of ideate um, you know, Zero Shoes? Why the name Zero Shoes? Yeah. Well, uh, so 15 years ago when I was 45, I got back into sprinting after a 30-year break and was getting injured pretty much constantly for the next two years. And a friend of mine who's a world champion runner suggested I take off my shoes and go run barefoot. And I very quickly learned why I was getting injured. I was overstriding, pointing my toes in a way that was putting the brakes on with every step. And again, doing it wrong felt bad, doing it right felt good. And by getting out of my big, thick, padded, motion-controlled shoes with pointy toe boxes that are not the shape of your foot, my injuries went away. I became faster. So I'm a master's all-American sprinter, which means for men over 55 in America, um, I'm one of the fastest guys in the country, soon hmm. to be 60. I'm looking forward to my first official race when I turn 60 in a couple of weeks. So I'll be all well, happy birthday again. in advance, 60-year-old e-commerce entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that barefoot experience, that natural movement experience, I wanted more of that. And so I knew about the Tarumara Indians in Mexico who make sandals out of used tires. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got some you, some uh, shoe repair material, so sheet of rubber, about four mil thick, and figured out a way to lace those onto my foot. And that's what I was wearing for footwear. And mm-hmm. other people kept asking me to make sandals for them. So I made a pair for my wife who kind of patted me on the head like, was this honey. Was this for the track or was this every day? For everything, for okay. everything. All right. Okay. Um, so I was going barefoot whenever I could and wearing sandals if I didn't want to argue about whether it was legal to get into a restaurant, which it is. Mm. Um, and so, and on the track as well. Uh, I can't run. I can't run full speed barefoot on the track because with a Mondo track surface, it's you know very sharp, and at the speed that I'm running, it just rips the crap out of your foot. So I needed the, something to pr- just add protection. Which is, if you think about it. For 99.95% of human history, that's all footwear was. Something to protect the bottom of your foot, something to hold that onto your foot, something to let your foot move naturally. So that's what I was doing, just going back in time. And uh, one day a guy who was a coach, a barefoot running coach, said that he was writing a book about barefoot running, in fact called Barefoot Running. And he said, if you had a website for this sandal making hobby of yours, I'd put you in the book. So I rush home and I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife who assures me that it's a dumb idea that won't make any money and is a waste of time. And I said, okay, I won't do it then. And after she went to bed, I built a website. And (laughs) so um, the next morning she kind of growled at me and I said, it'll be a case study for some search engine marketing business that we had started. 
And I said, you know, I'll own the keywords that I care about within about three months and we'll see. Maybe it'll be a car payment. Who knows? Um, I was wrong on both counts. It only took me six weeks till I owned. For any keyword that I cared about, I had f- at least 40 of the top 50 search results. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was clearly going to be more than a car payment by six weeks in as well. And that's kind of when Lena said, okay, I'm all in. You're going to need me to manage this for you. And that's how it all began. Interesting. The, the book doesn't have to be this one. It doesn't have to. Oh my God. It's is exactly that. Is that, is that, that it? The, the, yeah. Well, Michael Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> Super, super um, interesting. This is, yeah, Providence. I, I, I literally bought it three weeks ago when I started running. Yeah. So that is brilliant. Interesting. Super interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. So you started it. Um, what year was this? This was like 12, 12 years ago. This was um, late, late 2009. 2009. And at the time in 2009, if, if I'm not mistaken, SEO started becoming a bit complicated. Google started releasing like the Penguin, you know, updates. Uh, no, no, the, that, was, the, that was a few years later. In 2000, okay, okay. late 2009, it was actually pretty simple. It's a free, free for all. Google, yeah. Well, it was a bit of a free for all, and Google kept over optimizing certain things. Mm. So, do you remember? Do you remember Squidoo? See how far back you go. No, I, I, I don't. Squidoo is kind of like a blogging platform in a way, and for a period of time, if they and if you made a page on Squidoo, they called it a lens. I don't okay. know why. Maybe it's like a lens looking into something. And there was a time where if you just had a Squidoo page with good keyword optimization. I you were number one. I mean, I just remember. instantly. Yeah. And then Google figured that out. It's like, oh, we can't do that. And in 2009, early 2010, they were over-optimizing video. And there were maybe 50, 60 video sites. So if you submitted videos to all 50 of those sites, you owned a lot of real estate. Terms, yeah. And then a lot of article sites as well. Yeah. So there was just a lot of places to post things. And since the early days of Google was all about backlinks and, and a, a preponderance of backlinks, you could submit to all of those sites and suddenly have a lot of backlinks and Google was giving you high priority. The big thing that changed for us is that um, you know you're in a bad market when annoying internet marketers are saying that they should go after, that people who bought their course should go after your market as a way of making money. Mm. So for example, um, do you remember the AdSense, AdWords, Arbitrage? Oh yeah. Time. So yeah. for people who don't know, um, so AdWords is when you search something on Google, you see ads, those are AdWords ads, and they'll point you to a page. And then what people were building was pages that had AdSense, and AdSense is those same ads on your own page. So there was an arbitrage play where you could advertise on Google for, say, a dollar, drive people to your website, and if they clicked on one of those links, you could make a dollar twenty-five. So you got a $0.25 cent margin um, by just building out these sites. And so... Um, the big thing that happened then, that's when people said, go after Barefoot Running as a place to build AdSense pages and run AdWords ads to them. So it was way too expensive for us to advertise because people who had read, gotten these internet marketing courses were paying $2 a click, $3 a click. And we were selling a $20 product. There was mm. just no way to make that work. And then I was at, actually at an internet marketing workshop. It was probably... 2010, maybe early 2011, where there was a bunch of guys at that workshop who were making millions of dollars a month doing this AdSense, AdWords arbitrage play. And I was with them the day that Google figured it out and killed all those sites. Mm. And they went from millions of dollars a month to nothing overnight. Do you remember a guy called Shoe Money? 
Oh yeah, yeah, very well. <laughs> right, yeah, I remember him. I wonder how well, he's there, doing I, mean, now. I was literally like walking around this conference, and it was like watching ghosts because they were stunned. And one internet marketing friend of mine, one of the few guys who's done this longer than me, he said to them, "Look, I told you, don't build your business on somebody else's back because they can change it at any moment." Yeah. And here's the situation you're in. Yeah. So, um, obviously. From the sounds of things, it, it, it looks like search was a pre, was the major way you you launched. Um, you know, zero. Were there any other defining yes, moments? Well, search with a caveat. Okay. Um, I I basically gave away the farm. I made a bunch of videos showing exactly how to make our product. Obviously, if you bought our materials, but also if you didn't buy our materials, I I gave away the entire business model, knowing that most people weren't going to do it. And if they did, that's cool. I have no problem with competition. Uh, and so it was all those videos that really started it. And then the, or, the other uh, organic search as well. But the video really drove it significantly. And, and Were these YouTube that, videos? Uh, it was YouTube. It was Vimeo. It was, I mean, it was, again, there was like 50 different video platforms. YouTube was the number one driver though. Okay, so so it sounds to me like you're building community because you're you know yes. with the videos you're you're getting attention from an audience of people and you know some of them are going to take action given Correct. the fact that what you were giving the content you're giving to them or the information you're giving to them was 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 valuable was was um a value to you them. nailed it yes it's creating value that's number one but um, you use the phrase building a community I was actually doing something a little more complex than that, uh, not complex, a little more subtle than that. Um, I was tapping into existing communities. So there was at that time a burgeoning barefoot running community that was showing up mostly in, um, oh gosh, uh, there were some blogs and Google groups, et cetera. And, and so I was just showing up where people were already having a conversation about what I was doing and just injecting myself into that conversation by providing actual value. Mm -hmm. And that was, and then moving them over to what we were doing as a result of that. And then that would grow also. I mean, I met a guy, oh my God, 10 years in who said, you know, I saw your videos and I started making sandals and I've never bought anything from you. I said, great. I mean, I did it because I'm trying to change the world, not trying to get money out of everyone's pocket. Mm -hmm. And this is changing the world. And so I'm happy to hear it. He goes, by the way, because I learned to make my own footwear, it was like having a superpower. And then I started repairing uh, like appliances that I had. Instead of throwing them away and buying a new one, I started mm. repairing them. And I started making other things. And I started gardening. And it just opened up this whole idea of having agency in your life instead of just turning everything over to some corporation, which is an ironic thing to say now that we're selling <laughs> footwear. But, you know, but look, you can still go out and make a pair of sandals the way human beings have been doing it since the beginning of human beings. Mm. It's not rocket science, or as they said back then, it's not rock science. But if you're going to make you know, actual footwear, that's a whole other story. You can't do that on your own very easily. Interesting. So, so how many SKUs do you, do you have now at the moment at Zero Shoes? Um, if we're including sizes mm. and colors for every style, I mm. literally don't know the answer to that question. Mm. Um, probably somewhere around 7,000. How do you manage that from uh, from a demand <laughs> forecast and an order management uh, perspective? Well, let's just say that no one's ever done it right. If they did, there wouldn't be stores like in America, like Ross and Marshall and TJ Maxx and you know other outlet stores where sure. companies give away their old inventory. Um, so we, it's it's really really tricky. We are looking at every color and every size and seeing what isn't isn't selling. 
We can't do it perfectly because sometimes and often we'll sell out of colors and sizes. So we don't know what the data is or would have been if we hadn't sold out. We, Because we were growing so quickly for most of the time since we started, we never had enough money to buy enough inventory to really know what the organic sales would look like. Um, and then sometimes we make a style that doesn't sell as well as we expected it to and we get over inventoried. So this is something that we are monitoring uh, daily and evaluating weekly and making decisions about, uh, you know, every couple of months when we have to figure out what we want to do next and how to place those orders. And, um, there's lots of tools and we have a lot of smart people who've been doing this for 30 years plus, but it's, it's a concerted effort to get as close as you can, knowing that you're never going to get it right. Mm. So how many orders do you process on a daily basis? Typically? Uh, on average, about a thousand. Yeah, that's a lot of shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And during a sale period, you know, sometimes two or three or three or four thousand. Yeah. And then operationally, um, is where, where's your fulfillment based? Is 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 it in a single unit? Do you is it? Third it, it is right. Unit? It is right now. We we worked with a, a 3PL, a third party logistics company, and. Uh, became their biggest client very quickly. And then that company was trying to grow in part to support us. And their investors said, eh, we went out and we moved to a couple of other 3PLs. Some of our products like the do-it-yourself sandal kit is kind of weird to deal with um, for a 3PL because you can't make them in advance because we had a bunch of different sole styles, sole colors, sole thicknesses, and then a bunch of different lace colors. And there, there was essentially about 5,000 combinations. And you can't make them in advance because there's no way you'd get that inventory correct. So you have to build mm. them on the fly. And most of the 3PLs weren't willing to do that or do it at a cost that made any sense. And so we've been running our own warehouse for, oh boy, um, probably over eight years. Um, so mm. we have our own warehouse in Denver, about 90,000 square feet. And um, that'll last us for a few years. Um, we are looking to find ways of taking some of that inventory and moving it to both the East and West Coast. We also have distributors in other countries. We have our zeroshoes.eu um, in the EU, and we have a whole operation in Prague or based in Prague. Um, we have There's a dealer in the UK, zeroshoes.co.uk. Okay. We're going to be taking that over in the near future. And what's, what's and the UK URL again? Sorry. Zeroshoes.co.uk. Okay. Okay. Um, and so again, an independent dealer and we're looking at the different ways that we can handle inventory and warehouse inventory and manage returns in the UK post Brexit. Um, it's become very complicated and expensive. Indeed. Uh, we can't ship from Prague to, well, we can ship from Prague to the UK. It just costs about $40 per box, which is it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And um, for travelers, for instance, you used to be able to claim your VAT when you travel because it's twenty percent, you know, more. Um, and since Brexit, you just can't. So when can't you go to that. the airport, you can't do that anymore. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Brexit um, has had. I would say there are unforeseen consequences, but these are all things that many of us predicted, and mm -hmm. they've just come. But mm -hmm. the people who are pro Brexit didn't believe they were real or didn't believe they'd be as significant. Yep. 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 Super interesting. So you're. It's quite um, a sophisticated and complex, um, you know, operational, um, you know, setup you have there. And, and you mentioned that your wife, um, you know, manages operations and finance. Um, what bits are, how, what's your secret to, to just 
ensuring order and predictability <laughs> in, in You're operations. So cute. Um, well, first, first, let me qualify. Uh, Lena was the kind Lena, of CEO or CFO, okay. but we um, we now have the wonderful good fortune of having a a professional CFO and professional COO. Okay. So they've taken over a lot of what she was pulling her hair out over for years. Um, this idea that you can manage things and they're not, it's not always, you know, hair on fire out of control. Uh, that's hysterical. So there's every day there's something that goes dramatically wrong and hopefully you're smart enough to figure out how to, what you need to learn to put out that fire. Um, so we do the best we can by hiring really smart people by paying more money for certain positions than other companies think that you should like our customer happiness team aka customer service they're really really important so we pay them really well and our warehouse team same thing um it takes a long time to get someone up to speed to know how to support our brand and to lose somebody is super expensive so we want to make this a good place to work we want people to want to be here um that's another thing we only we typically only hire people who believe in our mission and are gung-ho about helping change the world by giving people uh, healthy, happy bodies starting feet first. And without that, you know, there's not a synergy, there's not a good mix or fit with the company. Um, but literally running a company is just a daily process of dealing with things that go wrong that either we're going fine yesterday that you have control over or that we're going fine yesterday that you have no control over. So when the Trump administration imported or um, uh, created this you know, trade war with China and increased our tariffs, our import duty, our import taxes, we had no control over that. And we had to figure out what to do when the cost of some of our shoes doubled. And that what was did you, what uh, very did you do entertaining. Off the back Oh yeah, yeah. Um, we did some negotiating with our factories. We've so in America, how to describe this briefly? So in most of the world, import taxes are relatively simple. So like for Europe and the EU, uh, for footwear, it's seventeen percent. End of story. In the U.S., there's I think five hundred different categories for taxes for footwear, and there's differences. So I have a I don't have one behind me. Um, so one of our sandals, uh, it's, uh, wait, no, I don't have one that I can grab easily. One of our sandals, it looks kind of like a flip-flop, okay? Mm -hmm. So it has a, a, a textile material for the lace. If that textile, and as a result, the import duty is something like 37.5%. It's ridiculous. Hmm. If that textile lace was replaced with a leather lace, the import duty would be 20%. And if we could, instead of having little wings on the side of the sole, so the laces don't touch the ground. Um, if we had little holes on the bottom, so it looked like a flip-flop, hole in the front, holes in the, in the back, uh, that's a Zori construction. The import duty would be zero. Wow. It makes no sense whatsoever. A lot of these, in, these tax rules were created 100 years ago and haven't been revisited since. So um, here's a crazy one. If 51% if of the sole of the shoe is fabric, then there's a lower tax rate. So there's things you can do to treat the sole of the shoe to make it fabric. I mean, and people have known about this for years. So there's, there's basically you need a, an attorney who understands all the footwear tax laws to find all the various little things that you could do to find a way to not have to pay so much. But the other thing we had to do is we had to raise some of our prices because there was no way around it. Yeah. And that was 
painful for us. Yeah. Um, but we had no choice. And, and I see three key, you know, um, functions working in tandem. You, you have the, the, the attorney, you know, that's, you know, picking up all the, um, the nuances, you know, in the nuance in, you know, in, in law. And then you have yeah. your product team trying to adjust you know, your yep. products in line. Yeah. And then you still need to get a customer advocate to, to know, okay, if we're making these changes in, in these shoes or this footwear, is it still going to, you know, satisfy our customers? And they all, it has to yep. just work out. So. No, you, you nailed it. it. And, and there are a lot of companies that actually uh, start by exactly the way you said it is they understand the tax law and then they build a shoe based on the law rather than trying to figure out how to work together. They just go straight for, okay, here's the way around all these taxes. And now we're going to build that product and take it from there. It's, um, here's a really interesting one. If you ship your product from certain tax-free zones, um, and the cost of the product, the sale price is under $800, there's no import duty at all. There's no taxation at all. So there are people who are shipping their product to certain places in Mexico, which are tax-free zones. And then when they get the order, the order goes to Mexico. And then a FedEx truck picks it up in Mexico, drives across the border to California, and then drops it off at a FedEx facility and ships it from there, tax-free. Um, the challenge is that you have very little control over a lot of pieces of that process. So a lot of things could go wrong. Our warehouse is 15 minutes away. Um, it lets us go check on inventory. It lets us kind of just see what's happening in a way. It lets us be involved with our warehouse workers who are our employees. So they have a vested interest in our business. Um, it's a very different thing, but there, but it's a constant kind of game of cat and mouse between the industry and the government and the manufacturers and the government and the customers and the government. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's a, there's a lot to pay attention to. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X e-commerce. We encourage you to connect with our community of 2X e-commerce listeners on our Facebook group, e-commerce growth accelerator mastermind. Just search for 2X e-commerce on Facebook to find it. Answer three questions and you'll be approved. Grab the show notes of this episode on our website, 2xecommerce.com. Finally, if you haven't already, give the show a review on your podcasting app. Catch you on the next show and keep growing.